0: Awesome. Okay, uh so I guess I'll just start we can start with like a short self-introduction and then we can dive right into the questions. Okay, so um hi everyone, my name is Yi Chen. I'm a rising second year PhD student, uh studying culture, identity, and narratives at Columbia Business School. And, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I am Devin Rapp. I um I'm at the University of Utah, and I'm a rising fourth-year student uh, or PhD candidate, and I study burnout and engagement and entrepreneurship and stigma and lots of lots of things. So, really happy to to be here and and learn from from you, Doctor Casino.
2: Thank you. So- sorry. <laughs> It's fine,
1: yeah.
2: Hi, I'm Olga Kisina. I'm an associate professor of business administration at Gies School of Business at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I study a lot of different things, uh, including categorical stigma that we're going to talk about today. But I'm also interested in category research in general, and industry evolution, and also in organizational and product names. Very happy to be here and um, very happy to talk about my paper with uh, Samira Rees and Cameron Verhal.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. Um, uh, Ishi. I can just get right into the first question then. Is that is that yeah. sounds good. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so yeah, the first question was like, we would just love to learn more about the background of the paper. So where did that idea come from initially? And what were some of the major hurdles that you had to overcome in developing and and testing a new theory?
2: Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting that this project started as completely something else. Like three of us got together, Samira Cameron and I, because um, I worked in the past with Samira and I worked in the past with Cameron. And I decided to bring them together to do something, um, just um, three of us. And uh, Cameron had this data um, that he obtained from um, on marijuana producers and products. And the initial idea was much more boring than (laughs) this paper is turned out. We were interested in studying how consumers, what kind of role they play in the legitimation of a new industry. So stigma was just a background. We treated this um, industry as stigmatized, but when we presented very early research at one conference, it turned out that this is not evident for many people, people didn't take for granted that the marijuana market is stigmatized. Some people agreed, like, yes, it's stigmatized, and other people say, like, no, it's not, like people from California specifically. Sure, sure. Or they would say, like, it used to be stigmatized, and it's not anymore. So we like thought about, okay, that's a more complicated issue that we initially thought, which prompted us to go and look into the stigma literature because none of us was doing stigma research before this project, but we thought, like, oh, the issue is complicated. We need to learn more about it. Um, The stigma literature turned out to be very fascinating. Fascinating. It's actually very interesting literature, very vibrant. And I would say relatively new. People started, of course, it has roots, goes back to Goffman, but organizational scholars started studying it relatively recently, right? It's just the last 10 years or so. Um, A lot of interesting research is going on. So we learn a lot just reading this literature, but also what we found when we were reading it, that there are a lot of gaps that are very interesting to address. In particular, Uh, when we focus on categorical stigma, what we found is that a lot of research is interested in understanding what kind of actions organizations can undertake to mitigate this stigma. And there are quite a number of quantitative papers which look at what type of companies would undertake what type of actions to mitigate this stigma. Right. The assumption here that these strategic actions will help them to appeal to their audiences and to persuade them to stop destigmatizing them. But what we found there actually only assumptions that that would happen, there is no actual research uh, from an empirical point of view. Like, yeah, um, a lot of papers look that companies can take this action and that action, and, they even link this to performance, but there are no direct studies that would actually prove that these actions affect audiences and make audiences more receptive to these companies, like uh, make audiences to remove stigma or vilifying label they touch to these companies. So we think it's a big gap because it's, um, the whole goal of strategic actions to mitigate stigma is to change perception of audiences, but nobody studies this directly. There are a few qualitative studies that kind of gathered that, but it's not their primary concern. And there are no quantitative studies. So we decided like, here's an interesting gap we could address with the data we have. And stigma research fits nicely into research and categories that all three of us are interested in. And research and industry evolution, right? Because stigmatization changes over time. And this is a part of evolution in some indices. So that's how it was born. It started as completely something different, brought us to stigma literature and got us interested in addressing this gap. Like, how do audiences change perception of whether organizations should be stigmatized or not? So that's how this paper was created. But actually, uh, the first draft, uh, it was created very quickly. We have data, actually, that allows us to study directly how audiences, um, perception of audiences with respect to stigmatized organizations and how this perceptions changes over time. So that was a big advantage to address in this question. Um, We wrote the paper very quickly. So the challenges actually started in the review process when we got Arana from ASQ. We were super excited, uh, but it was a bit challenging to address. And not so much from the theory development point of view, although we have to do a lot there to make the theory uh, more persuasive. But I would like to give a big credit to the editor on our paper, which was Henry Graver, who was super helpful in outlining um, which direction we should go. And also to the three anonymous reviewers, which while were critical of some parts of the paper, always had good ideas, about how to address shortcomings. We actually had quite a bit of ideas we used to make our theory stronger. So this was um, challenging, but addressable. I I don't consider this as a hurdle. The hurdle became an empirical testing. Because the paper started, um, the analysis we used in the initial draft was at the state level. So we study marijuana industry in the US. And we compared what was going on in terms of destigmatization in different states. And reviewers correctly pointed out that um, some states are too big, and it's unfair to say and unreasonable to assume that the destigmatization process will be uniform in a large state like California. So what they wanted us to do is to go to a much lower level of analysis like county. Mm-hmm. So we agreed, but um, we didn't have data on some very important variables at the county level. So it became a huge challenge to find this kind of data. Um, eventually, before found out that general social survey, GSS, I think you've heard about it probably, um, has uh, the data we need, but the data at the county level, it's considered to be sensitive data. So you cannot get it online. Mm -hmm. We had to buy it from them, which was okay. The problem became the process, which took eight months from the time we contacted them, to the moment we got actual data, because um, the data is sensitive, so the lawyers had to get involved, I mean, at the university and their own lawyers,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm working at the state school. I don't know if it would be fast at some other university, but it took a long time to... Oh, another problem was that one of the authors is um, European, she works in Spain. So there were a lot of paperwork to fill about, um, uh, we had to take online classes, how to handle uh, sensitive data, but it's not that easy if you're not in the US. So they were all kind of like, it sounds, um, It's not difficult to do, but it was very time consuming to figure out all this bureaucracy and legality. So it literally took eight months, which made us a little bit nervous. Um, As you will know, when you work with your papers, the longer you take to revise the paper, um, it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Reviewers forget what the paper is about. Mm. So we're like, okay. but eventually, we got the data. Only one person could use the data. It's like super strict about how you can use it. You have to specify your computer. You cannot just send it like you so say. Like it will be my office computer. The data will never leave the office. But um, the key that we got it and it worked out. Another thing was making us nervous because you don't know if it, the data will work until you get it. So. It worked out. We're very grateful to General Social Survey that they collect this type of data and they were will willing to share for a fee, but it wasn't that high. We're just grateful that they had this data and we were able to get it and run analysis that persuaded reviewers that our processes is what we theorize about. Even if we go to the county level, and it was the right thing to go to the county level. It's still we got results consistent with the theory.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> Mind the answer about that. But um, I think people sometimes think like, oh, the main hurdle is um, theory development and analysis. Sometimes it's just getting data.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But, um, Yeah, analysis, we had to learn also. We actually learned a completely different method we didn't know about. Because the editor said, since you have data, uh, we had it at three different levels at dispensary, county, and state. So there are multi-level models that handle this kind of data that we never worked before. So we had to learn this method, which was fine. Again, it's like dependent only on us. We didn't have to wait on anybody. So it's. yeah so so you had a lot of
1: you had a lot of fun hurdles
2: <laughs> I had a lot of fun but like again <laughs> it's like time some of them were time consuming others were more fun and again that's I think like we were really lucky to get great reviews because mm-hmm. what often happened like people criticize parts of the paper they don't like something but they don't suggest how. Mm-hmm they think it can be fixed and um, the edit and the reviewers were pretty good about saying like here's the possible ways you can address that because it becomes um, much easier to revise as opposed to like say we don't like something and like yeah I have an idea how to fix that but I'm not sure whether they... Um, would like it, so I think good edits and good reviews is are super important, and we would like you to get uh, amazing edits and reviews.
1: Sure. And and um, I, I should have mentioned too at the beginning, the um, the paper's name is "Stepping Out of the Shadows: Identity Exposure as a Remedy for Stigma Transfer Concerns in the Medical Marijuana Market." I just thought that was um, kind of silly of me to not say it at the beginning, but. Perfect, yeah. Thank you so much for that answer.
0: Great, yeah, thank you. Um, I really appreciate like, you sharing the nuts and bolts of developing this project and all these hurdles, and sometimes unexpected ones to overcome. That's really helpful. And now I'd like to just delve into the content of the paper. Um, so I'd like to start with a question of audience. That's my favorite part. Um, so you discussed about audience heterogeneity uh, in response to the organizations in this stigmatized market. So in particular, you focus on those who adopt a phantom acceptance strategy as potential customers. And I'm curious just to hear like, have you considered how identity exposure could affect audiences who are initially just like opposed to the products differently? And an alternative hypothesis could be that identity exposure further intensifies their opposition rather than mitigating their stigma transfer concerns or these audiences could shift their opposition from a more public realm to private spaces? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's a great question, very
2: important too. We specifically didn't focus on this type of people because um, our focus was consumers, people who buy and consume marijuana. So there is great heterogeneity among those people as well, right? And we look at those that accept it openly, they're not ashamed of uh, consuming marijuana and talking about it. Those uh, with phantom acceptance, right? That would buy it in secret, are fine with this market supplies. They don't need to expose um, uh, their consumption and companies help them to stay hidden. The third category we'll look at is people call mildly opposed and what we meant by that it's um, currently they don't consume the product even if they have a medical prescription because the market is stigmatized and they avoid dealing with it. But they kind of open to change their attitude if there is a little bit of push for them to show, look, The situation is not that bad. The market is getting more accepted. So they are potential consumers and they become consumers in our data, right? Sometime in the future. So what you talk about is a much stronger form of opposition when people are strongly opposed and under no circumstances, they're going to change their attitude. And we agree that such people exist And I think your hypothesis is uh, very plausible. Of course, it will be a matter to empirical testing, but I think it's super plausible. And maybe it's what indeed that what happens that people who are strongly opposed to the stigmatized market get more upset and more held up when this market becomes destigmatized. So differently from the other three categories, they consider it, these people may take actually a proactive stance to express the opposition. Um, some, of them, some of them can move it from public to private sphere. Okay? So I think like there will be two types of this type uh, audiences who are strongly opposed. When the market becomes destigmatized, some move their objection to the private area. They just still oppose internally, but they don't publicly express their position. Um, and the other type would be that they react, um, they organize in a position. Mm-hmm. They think this market shouldn't be destigmatized. They're openly against it and they can even organize collective action to change the situation. But as I mentioned before, they're unlikely to be consumers of this product since they're so opposed to it. So they're not a part of audience that we developed the theory about. But I think it's definitely worth exploring this type of audience to fully understand how, market destigmatization happens and what consequences it has for different types of audiences not just that uh ready to buy and talk about it but those that would never buy it under any circumstances and um yeah i think it's um an important audience and um it's an important kind of question right uh i was thinking this question made me think about um especially your hypothesis about that some of these people can take their position from the public sphere to the private one. And I think it might happen. And what's interesting, it might happen until the time is right and the post again, like what's currently happens with an abortion issue, right? In this country, right? A lot of people, I mean, a lot of people uh, don't stigmatize, um. um this kind of area a lot of people do but a lot of people were quiet until recently and suddenly like there are a lot of voices mm-hmm. that are against abortion and it's like you wonder where they come from maybe these are people who move to from public to private um, sphere but they move back when the situation um, change into the favor of what they believe in. So I think it's a super interesting issue to explore, but it was outside of,
0: uh, of our paper. Right, yeah, thank you so much. This is really um, fascinating to hear as well. Um, so my next question is on the use of computational linguistic method um, to measure customers' concerns with stigma. So. Um, Apart from the organizational names, have you also considered analyzing other forms of organizational narratives, such as website description and advertisement? Um, and one wouldn't then expect that shops with direct names would also have website contents with more explicit references to marijuana. However, those with less direct names um, could also have contents with increasingly more explicit references um, as is simply as it's more simple to update uh, the content than the organizational names. we also love to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah,
2: again, very interesting question. You guys have great questions. What you outlined here, it's like an idea for a completely new paper, right? So we didn't think about looking at websites, um, advertisements, Um, I think it's, um, Actually, logical to explore these narratives as well, but I think they are different from the names. So mm-hmm. Besides, like, my personal interest in names, <laughs> I bring it up. I think like names is a um, stronger tool for destigmatization than website and advertisements. And one reason you outlined yourself that descriptions are relatively easy to change and names are much harder to change. It's not that it doesn't happen, but it happens much uh, more rarely. Um, so what it means is that when people see a name, even subconsciously they treat it as a much greater commitment to the cause than web description that you can change like at your will every day like nobody like you don't copyright this <laughs> anywhere there are no legal processes changing the name like it's hard not just because of commitment but there are legalities involved and mm-hmm. so on but web description is something very fluid change at will so i think people even without thinking it much will treat it as um, less evidence of commitment to this kind of market than a name. Name is like something that's hard to change. So that's one reason we think it's a much more important tool and people would pay more attention to names, like identity exposure would happen more potently through names, not through web descriptions. Um, another reason is that uh, names, uh, you see them not just on the website, you see them on the storefront, right? Even if you don't consume marijuana, you get exposed to names. So which helps to educate, um, expose to the market identity, not only people who consume marijuana, mm-hmm. but everybody else, right? Well, whoever see it uh, by chance. So, which helps destigmatization more because the stigmatization is not only about like people who consume, believe it's okay. It's also people who don't consume, right? They um, don't criticize people who do. That's another reason why names is more important. But saying all that, I completely agree with you that description advertisements are also part of narratives. Um, they can play a role. And perhaps it's a question for future research. Um, our data wouldn't allow to address the, your hypothesis because um, we actually collected data at one point in time. So we had descriptions that they had at that point. So the data would be required to see if the change description would need to obtain historical data and somehow, I don't know if it's even feasible because... Mm-hmm. Uh, But I think it's a super interesting research question, right? Um, What type of companies and how soon change their description in reaction to market destigmatization? I think it would make a fascinating paper if somebody can get data like that. It's like, Mm -hmm. who does it fast? Like how it affects their performance? Perhaps those who do it one of the first, are not seen as uh, um, authentic. I don't know. (laughs) If you do it in the middle, it's more acceptable. (laughs) And late to the game, it's too late to attract attention. So I think there are a lot of possibilities here. So I think it's a super
0: interesting area to look at. Yeah. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much about um, the choice with names, because I think that makes a lot of sense to me now, about signaling a commitment, and also has impact that beyond the direct consumers has a broader impact. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Um, so I just have one final question and then I think Devon has another question. Um, So my final question is, do you have any advice for grad students and early career researchers who are interested in organizational identity and stigma and specifically um, where would be a good place you think to find interesting puzzles to solve?
2: Yeah, so you guys kind of like, Questions you ask me, you already propose research questions that haven't been researched, right? Like how companies change descriptions in reaction to changes in public sentiment, right? About the market. Um, I think that's a great question to ask. And then um, the other one was. Uh, like the, the type of consumers that are strongly opposed. I think it's an interesting question to ask. I don't think I need, um, I think y'all like, at least like two of you are already very creative. You have very good question. Um, and they, are, they all address some kind of puzzle that hasn't been explored in the literature yet and can potentially be an important contribution My overall advice is always to pick something that excites you, not what you think people will be interested in or can get more attention, but what personally excites you um, will make you motivated to work on it. Because if you pick something that you think other people like, but you have very little interest in, it's gonna be very difficult to produce something of high quality. So, But um, I think um, normally students have a lot of great ideas. I think it's like you have a fresh take on the literature, you like read a lot of literature, right? a lot of diverse literature that you can bring together. So I don't think you need advice on how to find a puzzle like my only advice is just pick something that really excites you that like you wake up and you first thought like, Oh, I'll continue to work on it today. So because it's not just keeps you motivated when you encounter hurdles, <laughs> you will, right? All of us do, but also when you're excited about something, you do your best work. It's uh, yeah, I know it's not a very specific advice, but um, uh, more specific would be like how we read this literature and found the gap. Like, that's like for us an important puzzle. Like everybody speaks about what kind of strategic actions organizations can undertake to reduce stigma, but nobody looks, does the stigma actually get reduced as a result of these actions, right? Sometimes you read the literature and see that like, okay, that's important, but like why nobody studies that. And if it's interesting to you, that's something you can pursue. But overall, yeah, whatever excites you. And I don't I don't want to say that, of course, like study is something that you find personally interested, but you present your idea to people, nobody whatsoever um, finds it interesting at all. So that's kind of signal, maybe you're on something that's not relevant to the field, right? That something has to be exciting, not just you, but at least some people you talk to. It doesn't have to be of interest to everybody, but it has to be some critical mass of people to say like, okay, there is an audience for what I'm doing. Because like, yeah, Yeah. the last thing I want you to pick something (laughs) that's (laughs) too esoteric for anybody, to get an interest but um don't expect 100 of people to be excited about what we do it's just like some like established personal if at least some people do that you are onto something right that um, because it's like yeah there, there are two components it has it has to excite you personally to produce a great quality work but uh, other people should be interested as well, yeah, because um, your ultimate objective is to publish
1: your research, but yeah, so two. Sure, well, well, thanks so much for that. And I think this final question kind of is related to that and what you're talking about, like um, for like an, a non-academic setting, um, you know, like again, for young scholars interested in, in stigma research, How can we use the stigma research and the findings um, that we come up with in ways that are you know responsible impactful and pro-social as you know has kind of been talked about a lot lately with like responsible research and how we can make a positive impact Um, stigma seems like maybe a little bit less intuitive in that like uh, in how we apply it to those kind of non-academic settings and and to your previous point, like how we can really get excited about it to bring it to you know more of an audience than maybe just uh, you know academic researchers.
2: Yeah, so I want to start answering this question by referring to you to your work, Devin. You actually do work that I think has social implications, right? Your paper on healthcare workers and how. They can get stigmatized by doing something important for society, right? You should, you you work at like healthcare workers who uh, work with people infected by COVID, and instead of people and got stigmatized in the process, right? Which um, was kind of unexpected to read about. I was a little bit surprised. Uh, It all made sense that they will get stigmatized, but you don't think about it. And um, I think research like that on stigma has big social significance, right? How, what can we learn from your research in terms of how we can make life of these people easier? They do something important and get very unfairly stigmatized for doing a social good for society. So... I think work like yours has very big implications um, that can potentially make important for non-academics, right? And I think it's actually super important for making a prosocial impact. Um, overall stigma research, I think there is um, something, to keep in mind, I guess, our research does have social implications. Stigma research is like, yeah, some industries are unfairly stigmatized and that affects negatively, not just participating audiences like consumers organizations, but society at large, like the biotech industry, has been stigmatized for a while because they do research on stem cells, like stem cells can help us to cure many serious medical conditions, but stigmatized based, including on religious grounds, because of uh, the method, right? So it's um, perhaps understanding more how we can destigmatize this type of markets also can bring greater social good. On the other hand, some industries, they're stigmatized and you think like, okay, I don't want to contribute to help them to stigmatize like gun industry, right? Like in the light of the recent events, like you think like uh, we need more stigma to touch that so we can finally achieve gun control, right? So we don't have this um, uh, tragic mass shooting. They happen so often. So, yeah, so that's something we need to keep in mind that like people, especially people who study like stigmatization, right? If we come up with practical ways of how to destigmatize something like, what the implications, like would it help society at large and people who live there or could be used in some way that um, is questionable. So I think like it's a complicated question, right? Because stigma is complicated too. Like uh, organizations and industries that are stigmatized, they're stigmatized for a reason. And sometimes it's unfair, sometimes it's maybe fair. So what what we find is um, we need to be careful. So uh, perhaps it creates like one area for research is like how, uh, I guess like a lot of research focus on, well, they focus on like why things get stigmatized and how we can destigmatize them, but perhaps we also need research on how we can stigmatize something more than it is, <laughs> just to to produce a positive social change. So that could be a thing too. But yeah, so it's um, I guess it's a complicated question, but um, and. But I think, like, some research has, um, there is no either or. I think, like, you, the research you do, like, some professions shouldn't be stigmatized just for doing social good. It's like there's no reason why nurses who work with COVID people should be stigmatized. So that's like a clear cut. Whatever you find, it's like you can be sure it's not going to be used in the wrong way. But some research could be, has to be more careful. Sure. Yeah. Yeah awesome. But- well,
1: yeah. No, I really appreciate that answer. And and um I, I think like you've been really um open and honest, I guess, about yeah, like your project and uh um yeah, those those bigger implications. Is there anything else that you think like, you know, we we should touch on or that we should have asked you? no, I
2: think they were great questions. I'm actually impressed. I think it's had to come up with good questions, and you already have like many of them are like research questions or new projects. If you can get data, I would love to keep in touch with both of you if you guys continue doing stigma research. Um, if you need feedback on your work, please don't hesitate, we'll be happy to read your paper. But, um, thank you, yeah, yeah, I don't know, as I think, like, the, to finish again like for me it's uh, stigma research is a relatively new area I got in but um, there is a lot to do there because it's relatively new overall there actually will be a PDW at the academy this year organized by the key figure in the stigma research so I don't know if you guys are going to attend like David attended that last year Uh, I think there are a lot of gaps in this area of research, because it's new. So there are a lot of good questions to ask. So if you want to do a dissertation on this topic, I think um, there are a lot of opportunities there. It's a fascinating area, uh, very, the implications are important for what's happening currently in society and in the world. And you guys have very good intuition about what, what's important just based on your questions. Yeah, thank you for such an interesting interview.
1: Yeah, yeah well, thank you and, and to your co-authors for the, um, yeah, the wonderful article and for your thoughts on it. Yeah,
2: yeah. thank so, you so Again, like Yeah, I think I mentioned their names, but again, to emphasize like Samira is and um, Cameron Verhal, yeah, it's a truly collaborative project. It was an equal contribution, so, Just want to emphasize, it was a work of, truly a work of three. And um, we're actually doing a new project on stigma. Um, We link it to political polarization in the U.S., how political polarization affects the stigmatization. So expect a new paper from us. Um, We take a more careful look at audience heterogeneity. Actually, this paper specifically studies how different audiences react but we don't cover the one audience um, you're most interested in because it's not, they're not consumers. But I think it should be studied again, just because we don't study. I think there is a great opportunity space to study this particular audience.
0: Wow. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to read the paper um, once it comes out. Yeah, sure. Sure.
1: Yeah, that that sounds really interesting and and very needed. Anything that uh, looks at political polarization, yeah, really needed, so.
2: Yeah, I don't know how like we actually say political polarization. What we find, it's um, it's good for destigmatization.
1: Oh, <laughs> so, is it okay? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Well, the idea is, um, I would say, rather simple. Um, well, it's we develop uh, the theory is more complicated than that. But like, mm-hmm. in short, to make it like very short, political polarization um, increases propensity of general population. Um, to behave in counter-normative ways
0: mm.
2: and counter-normative behavior is one of the driving forces behind desigmatization so it's like polarization usually has a lot of negative effects on all kind of outcomes but paradoxically it can have something positive i don't know so while it's still working paper we'll see how it will go but uh yeah, I think it's very interesting to link these two kind of things. And then links very neatly into your fifth question, right? What's the implications for society
1: mm-hmm. yeah. for
2: practitioners and for non-academics? What does this all mean? We need more research. Yeah. I'll <laughs> answer it's like more research. So yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, yeah, paradoxes are always fun. <laughs> in research yes, right? so, so,
2: yeah. yeah i love paradoxes. maybe a little bit too much
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm the same way yeah yep well well thank you again and uh yeah any any other thoughts issue i don't i think that that uh summarizes yeah. it great yeah i think so too
2: yeah thank you yeah thank you guys i'm like keep in touch Feel free to send me a walk. I'll send you the paper when it's ready for distribution. Okay? Perfect. Great. Wonderful.
1: Thanks so much.
2: Okay. Bye. Bye. Have a wonderful day. You too. Have a great break.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye.